0: You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today, we're in Courchevel.
1: If we thought the race for the yellow jersey was over this time yesterday, well, it certainly is tonight, isn't it? Jonas Vingegor has put the Maillot-Jean beyond doubt, and as we sit here with the sun setting behind the mountains and the air gradually going cool, uh, it feels like the Dane is... Pretty much guaranteed to clinch his second consecutive Tour de France in Paris on Sunday. We will talk all about that in this episode of the Cycling Podcast from the Tour de France. It was stage 17 today. My name is Lionel Burney and again I'm with Richard Abraham, whose work you may well have seen in Rouleur and other places. Welcome Richard. Your first kind of proper day Back on the Tour de France. I know I say that, yesterday you were here in full, but it was a time trial day, and doesn't kind of feel quite the same, but today it was proper mountains, wasn't it?
2: It was proper mountains, and it was proper big mountains as well. We're really high up, 2,000 metres, 2,300 or something on the top, and um, it's just the Tour de France. It's It's that sort of classic image of a tour, isn't it? Big mountains, all the key riders fighting it out, lots of fans on the roadside, helicopters in the sky. Like, it's, yeah.
1: Huge crowds as well Which we will talk about A little bit later I should set the scene We are here Surrounded by the mountains And camper vans Are parked in the car park Tour de France fans And uh, Richard has got Some kind of flying insect On his forehead there Oh it's well, I think it got away I think it got away We are sitting at the bottom Of a little ski lift Which in the winter time take people up To come down this uh, Quite a gentle run This one isn't it I think like I'd g- fancy green, my chances Green or blue Maybe blue In, in places uh, Not very steep I could cope with that, I could cope with that I'm no skier I should say well let's get on with the business of the day because it was a dramatic stage
0: it's time for the tale of the attack
1: Stage 17 from Saint-Gervais-Mont-Blanc to Courchevel, 165.7 kilometres up and down all day with some big, big mountains. And the attacks were going right from the start because lots of riders wanted to be in the big break. And it went clear eventually on the Col de Saizy. But one of the first things we heard was that Tere Pogacar, who was dealt that blow in the time trial yesterday, had a shocking start to the morning because he was on the ground early on after a small crash. So not the ideal start for him as he was hoping to get back into the picture, as difficult as that might have looked uh, this morning for him. The break went and it went kind of true to form, really. Jumbo Visma put two riders in it. UAE Team Emirates put two riders in it. There were lots of riders hoping that it might go their way and they would bag a stage win, the likes of uh, Valentin Madouas, Thibaut Pino, Rigoberto Urán was in there, Julian Alaphilippe, Jack Haig, Giulio Ciccone, who was chasing mountains points, and Rui Costa, Guillaume Martin... Lots of names that we've seen up the road already in the mountain stages, but uh, crucially, it was Felix Gal of AG2R and Simon Yates of Jaco Alula. Now, Jaco put three riders in there and, well, they were chasing the stage. But it all broke down on the climb of the Col de la Loze, and Felix Gal of AG2R really seized his moment. He had his big breakthrough win a month ago at the Tour de Suisse when he won a mountain stage there and he's been freed up in this tour because ben o'connor has been out of the overall picture since very early on and he really seized his moment despite a spirited chase from simon yates in the final kilometers i was wondering whether the steep climb up to the altiport at corchevel might catch gal out but no he had enough in the tank to win the stage a very impressive one for him but it was all about uh, the battle between Jonas Vingegaard and today Pogacar today and well the wind really has gone out of Pogacar's sails hasn't it he was struggling very early on on the climb of the Col de la Lose and really it, it wasn't in a phase of the race where Jumbo Visma were really piling the pressure on him he just kind of went backwards uh, lost contact had only one teammate Marc Soler for company and so he has lost a lot of time and now lies 7 minute 35 behind Jonas Vingegaard if there is a glimmer of Good uh, fortune for UAE team Emirates. It's uh, Adam Yates has kind of cemented his place in third place. So he looks like he may well take the podium position. Or, uh, well, a, a lot could happen on Saturday, of course, but he is one minute 16 ahead of Carlos Rodriguez. And then the real shuffling in the uh, bottom half of the top 10. Simon Yates not winning the stage, but he has jumped up three places to fifth overall. Pao Bilbao has also moved up one to sixth. Jai Hindley's dropped down two places to seventh and Felix Gal, who's been yo-yoing in and out of the top ten now looks a good bet to finish in that top ten in Paris because he is up to eighth. The King of the Mountains race really hotted up as well. Giulio Ciccone made it his mission to get as many points as possible and he won the first three climbs and he has the lead in the Polka Dot jersey competition with 88 points. Gal is only six behind with 82 and ominously Vingegaard is one point behind Gal, so that will all be decided on Saturday. We did lose a couple of riders as well. Alexis Reynard was a non-starter. Now, he crashed and fractured a bone yesterday, and Richard, we think, finished one second outside the time limit. One, yeah.
2: Which, I mean, to ride, he broke his elbow, according to Lekeep, and um, I can't imagine doing a time trial, even on a road bike, with a broken elbow. So, well done, Alexis, in, in actually finishing, but um, it sounds like the... It, 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 it probably was the right decision not to carry on with the yeah, broken I mean, he, sort of- he,
1: Yeah, he's not out because he finished one second outside the time cut. I, I would have thought no. if, he, if his injury is permitted, he would have been allowed by the race jury to carry on. Uh, one non-finisher, Phil Bauhaus of Bahrain Victorious, who was in the hunt for sprint stages early in the Tour, but that's one less sprinter to contest the remaining flatter stages. And we will discuss that in the final part. <laughs> Big thank you to MAP, the Melbourne-based cycling clothing company who have been sponsoring the Cycling Podcast since the beginning of last year and have produced our fantastic jersey, which is available at MAP.cc. We've been hearing from Jared Smith, one of the co-founders and co-owners of MAP, about Melbourne cycling culture.
3: G'day, this is Jared from MAP, and I'm the co-founder and the co-CEO. And yeah, have been doing this for 10 years now. The scene in Melbourne for cycling is pretty um, prevalent at the moment. It's really taken off, and I've been doing it for about 20 years. And in that time, it's really come a long way. And we've got a really great crit scene, and we've got many local clubs and teams. And it's uh, most weekends you can go down and catch a local race, or you know, or you choose to go for a ride out in the hills. We've got plenty of um, hill rides, and we also have a very popular ride on beach road which we see (laughs) hundreds of people there daily riding up and down beach road so the scene here it's really um embracing cycling and we also have a quite a big growing gravel scene which is uh getting bigger and bigger as well so yeah it's just a really vibrant scene at
1: the moment go to map.cc all of their clothing beautifully photographed on the website gives a really good impression of how it will look on the body that's map.cc now, Richard, that stage win for Felix Gal it's kind of been coming. He's been in breaks throughout the Tour, really, whenever the opportunity has presented itself. He was an eye-catching uh, performance at the Tour de Suisse. And as I said, with Ben O'Connor having fallen out of the GC picture very early, it's given Gal, riding his first Tour de France, opportunities. And today he really took that opportunity. Um, and, well, he seized the initiative, went up the road and made it a chase that's right. And I mean, he, he doesn't look like the sort of
2: rider that you'd think would excel on the kind of climb that the Col de Lelos is. Um, lots of changes in gradient. You'd think it would suit. Well, it was Miguel Anga Lopez who won the stage in 2020, who is about as pure as the pure climbers get, isn't he? Very small, very sort of punchy, accelerated rider. Um, Felix Gale just, just calmly churned away at that that climb um, and despite the best efforts of Simon Yates who, who does sort of fit that more climb and mould um, I mean Yates never really got, uh, got got close did he he was sort of yo-yoing between sort of 20-30 seconds but it never looked like that was under under much threat and um, even on that finish um, you could easily have made up 20 seconds with fresh legs on on somebody on that that brutal finish on the altipore I don't know what the percentage was there but very steep, steep. I yeah. was quite out of breath having walked up half of that <laughs> on the way to the finish line um one of those one of those roads that yeah it's steep to walk up as well as to ride up so um but you know, rode rode exceptionally well to to, to take the stage win. and he, he's been a presence in this tour hasn't he he's been he's been in that selection on the, on the final climb on a number of occasions just not necessarily dictating affairs um in the same way that uae and and uh Jumbo Visma have, but that's not his place to. Um, He doesn't have the teammates, he doesn't have the pedigree um, and yeah, he's rode a fantastic debut tour and I think, certainly like like you mentioned Lionel, the the fact that Ben O'Connor dropped out of contention fairly early on that's actually been such a great kind of a saving grace for Azure Desire hasn't it?
1: Yeah I mean when you think back to the Pyrenees and stage 5 which was the first real kind of mountain stage the one that Jai Hindley won where he took the yellow jersey Ciccone was second we thought then he might be targeting the polka dot jersey and lo and behold here he is with the jersey with a few days to go and felix gal with third on that stage but as you say it's it's just that hovering in and around you know he wasn't too far away the next day at courtier Cambasque he was 15th there uh, he was kind of second or maybe front of the third group on le puy de dom and then he's had a solid few days and uh, the grand colombier he was good and seventh on the stage to morzine as well so it has kind of been coming and Like I say, that race today, because of the severity of the final climb and, you know, not just the ramp up to the line, I mean the severity of the top part of the Col de la Lose and the descent as well, it was one of those stages where it kind of had to be done by the top before the plummet down on the, the very tricky descent, which we will talk about a little bit later. But he got himself out there and made himself very hard to chase. And Simon Yates is... You know, he's the sort of rider that you would probably bet on to close a gap like that. And he did get very close in terms of seconds. But, of course, on those steep gradients, you know, 15 seconds is a lot of actual physical ground to make up.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And I think that the nature of the Col de Lalo's as well is that all the riders are just on their limit at that point. It's not the sort of thing that you can almost ride tactically. It's so steep when it is steep that they're riding flat out to keep going. And then any recovery they can get on the easier sections. I mean, they're just trying to trying to, trying to to do that. Um, so it's, it's it's not the sort of typical alpine climb that um, could be raced tactically in that sense, really. It's just too hard for tactics to, to come into play.
1: At the finish, Richard, you were there when Simon Yates came over the line and let's hear what he had to say.
4: Yeah, we really uh, wanted to try and go after the stage today and uh, all the guys have been extremely... Fantastic. Uh, Hulot Lawson, Craddock there, driving the breakaway all day, and then Chris Harper to to raise the pace and pace me in the final. And Both guys did a uh, spectacular job, so shout out to them. Simon, just coming up the Caudillard-Lords, <laughs> did you have in your mind where you wanted to go or were you thinking very much about Vingegaard coming from behind and the, the favourites coming from behind? A uh, Bit of both. I think uh, you never know how fast those guys come from behind, so uh, that was always in the back of, of my mind and the rest of the guys. Uh, Chris did a fantastic job in the final part of the climb when they really started to raise the pace from behind. And uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't know the climb. I don't know if, it, if I changed anything, but I was very wary of the, uh, the altitude. So uh, I tried to pace myself and then go from there. And you waited a long time after that brilliant first day here for this opportunity. Did you have the legs that you would have wanted to have when the opportunity did present itself? No, I think I've done a good ride. And like I said to somebody else, chapeau to Felix there great ride by him. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm pretty happy with my ride. It's a shame it couldn't, couldn't be a win, but that's how it goes. And you've moved up a bit on GC, a bit of a, a crumb of comfort. Yeah, I wasn't really looking for that today though. I think, uh, I don't, don't even know I'm behind, 15 minutes or not, so uh, pretty irrelevant now.
1: At the team buses, I also spoke to Matt Heyman, sports director for Jayco Alula, who is in the second team car, which means that he went up to follow the breakaway and was behind Simon Yates all day. And this is what he had to say about Jaco Alula's third second place during this tour. Well, second place and a, a real pursuit on the run in there. What what was the story of the day from your point of view was there anything that Simon could have done slightly differently to have been closer to uh, Gal at the end?
5: Look, I don't, I don't know. I would have to talk to Simon. I haven't seen him since the race. Um, you know, he was well supported today. I mean, hats off to the team from the start of the day today. Um, I couldn't have asked more from them. You know, we, we decided we want to throw the kitchen sink at today's stage and see where we ended up. And if we lost time, we lost time. Um, you know, it's bittersweet because we were really going after the stage win as much as anything. And, um, but, yeah, look, that, that last climb is, is brutal. Uh, Simon knows, knows his body and I'm sure he rode to, to his limits. And, and if someone's better, then someone's better.
1: No mean feat to just get in a break like that when you're that high on GC, though. So what was the strategy this morning?
5: Oh, look, we just knew we needed numbers too. It's no point him being there by himself. Um, You know, we tested the waters. It didn't seem like Jumbo wanted to let it go. You're never really sure what their tactics are sometimes. Um, They were holding it there for a long time. But, yeah, um, eventually got out to around the three-minute mark. They had two riders there. I think they were a lot more um, comfortable once uh, Tish Benoet and uh, Kelderman came across. And then, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I haven't followed up. I saw something about six minutes for Pogicco. I don't know where everybody is yet. Um, and I saw once that happened that the guys were going back from the front group instead of going after the stage. Um, there's so many things at play, you know. You need to keep an eye on uh, mountains. joint. We knew that Ciccone would be going for that, and not only him, his whole team. There's Teams GC up for stake. So, yeah, it's quite a, you know, you've got to be on top of it all.
1: Well, there's a lot of riders in there, as you say, a lot of different objectives and only one Simon Yates, who's your card to play for the stage win. So it's, oh, look, it's quite mean, complicated, uh, isn't it? As one yeah, concept.
5: I mean, if it, if it had really blown out and we had uh, Chris Harper there, I would have been happy to let him go to the line. I mean, he wasn't bad. I think he's top 10 on the stage today. Uh, I mean, he can, uh, he can get up a climb like that. Um, and he did a fabulous job again today uh, for Simon. Um, yeah, bittersweet that, you know, that's the third, second place we've had in this tour. Um, but I can't, I can't knock the boys at all. Every time we we get out there, they they give it their all.
1: Three second places then for Jaco Alula, but I guess the difficulty was getting in the break in the first place because well placed overall, the second highest placed rider overall uh, in that 31 man group, Simon Yates, Peugeot, about just ahead, so that was probably contributing to the break not going out to um you know a significant advantage at any point during the day and with chris harper in there as well who's been shadowing simon yates throughout this tour and is a good climber in his own right uh, they did have a couple of cards to play but in that situation you would bet on simon yates being the most likely one to close it out but coming up just short i did ask you know what could they have done differently but very very difficult in a, 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 a stage like that as you say uh, Richard, it's about getting up the road and just holding on as much as anything.
2: That, that's right. I mean, I don't think Simon was ever really going for for the GC manoeuvre there. It was all about the stage win, um, as I think he said when he, when he crossed the line. And yeah, it's it, Simon's had a, he's had a really
1: a pretty good tour actually, two second places. I suppose if there is a downside Simon Yates is now fifth on GC so he's even more of a threat okay still 12 minutes 19 behind so he's not going to be worrying Jumbo Visma uh, but it might make it more complicated for him if he has his eyes on Saturday stage to Lamarckstein we will have to wait and see well we got down from the finish up in Courchevel and I think it's time to learn a bit more about the area from our very good friend Francois Thomasot
0: Now, for some French flavor with B be François Thomason. Right, here you are, guys. Uh, I suppose you're in Courchevel, one of the poshest uh, ski resorts in France, actually, with a number of uh, Michelin star restaurants. I'm not sure you'll be eating there tonight. Anyway, it's the first time the Tour de France is back in Courchevel since 2005, when who won the stage that day? Well... You'll know if you've listened if you listen to the uh, friends of the podcast episode on Alejandro Valverde because it's a uh, newly retired uh, Spanish friend who won there in two thousand and five. Courchevel is a ski resort who was that was created in ni- between nineteen forty six and nineteen fifty from scratch. Actually, the, the project began in nineteen forty six when the commune of Saint Bon, uh, which is just uh, down the valley, handed over the necessary land to the General Council. And the initial work was carried out with great difficulty, with materials having to be transported by mule and men, uh, such as the wooden poles for the tove and Loz ski lifts. And so they, they they had to wait for 1946 and 1948 for the first hotel to open, called Les Trois Vallées, the Three Valleys, And uh, some of the guys were used to bring... Uh, Equipment and uh, material to build a hotel were actually German prisoners of war. At a resort was first success by car in 1948. Well, now just a little bit about Col de la Lose. We, we were back there. I mean, we, we were there uh, before. I mean, it's not uh, obviously the first time that the Tour de France had gone to Col de la Lose. It was actually open in 2019. It was for, created by the ski resorts of Miribel and Courchevel. We decided to open a pass close to motorized traffic and dedicated to road bikes, and it links the valleys of Beauzeil and Les Alues at an altitude of 2,304 meters, which makes it the seventh highest pass in France and the third highest in Savoy, after the Isere and Galibier. Before 2019, the Col de la Loze was a ski slope, as I said, in winter, and a mountain bike trail in the summer. So today, remember in in 2020, when the Tour de France first came to the Col de la Loz, the stage was won by Miguel Ángel López, while Primoz Roglic dropped Tadej Pogacar in the finale. So Tadej Pogacar never, never had any luck, uh, you know, on Col de la Loz, even though he had better memories of Miribel as he won a stage in the Tour de l'Avenir there in 2015. And to finish, to wrap it up, you must remember the Tour de l'Avenir... Was the first race on which the Col de la Loz was used and it was actually uh, the, uh, the the whole of the 23.5 kilometers eighth stage of the 2019 Tour de l'avenir and it was won by Australian Alexander Evans The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fueled by science
1: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. Now, the Tour de France is one of the most gruelling physical tests a human body can undergo. It barely needs stating. Science in Sport's go-isotonic energy gels are scientifically formulated to help riders maintain their pace for longer. So while you're going through hell, Science in Sport have got something to keep you going. Developed for elite athletes, but available to all. Fueled by science. Go to scienceinsport.com for the full range. Now, I think, well, we're being devoured here. I don't know I don't what know. nutrition is in our blood, but the the midges and mosquitoes or whatever they are, kind of oh.
2: the red flavored gels tonight, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> yeah. We should perhaps explain what what pushed us here. We've we've been driven into the field more or less by um, not not the finest cover band. Um, that, no, that I've heard. No,
1: no. I've been followed around France by a Coldplay covers band, it feels like. There was a couple last week and when we arrived here at the bar we were hoping to record at, uh, he was belting out yellow. Maybe a Jonas Vingegaard fan, I don't know. Yeah. But um, we should talk about the GC battle because uh, we had the sense last night that Tadej Pogacar was cracking and we were perhaps thinking that maybe UAE Team Emirates would lay it all down and, and really... Uh, try and recover the losses, but it just didn't materialize at all, did it? Uh, Pogachar yeah. never looked comfortable, and before we knew it, he was drifting backwards before really the key part of the climb had been approached.
2: He was just never, yeah, like you said, Lionel never in it. Th- UAE and Yumbo kind of shaped up for something to happen because they both put two riders in the breakaway. Um, and indeed, what did happen was that when Jonas Vingegaard finally did basically ride away from the rest of the GC contenders quite a while after Pogacar had, had dropped back. You know, he caught up with um, his Jumbo Visma teammates, Tish Benoot and, and Wilco Kelderman. Um, he almost didn't really need to by that point. He was, you know, head and shoulders above the rest of his contenders. And, and he knew at that point that Pogacar was way off the back. Um, I mean, he's, we know that he's, he's not necessarily a rider who, goes that well in the heat it's something that's been discussed before as maybe one of his sort of uh, weaker areas and 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 the
1: higher altitude as well he struggled with i mean the col de granon last year was his achilles heel wasn't it
2: that's right and i mean he referred to that afterwards when he was uh, after the stage um he said that today was a lot worse than the col de granon and and, i mean that's evident in just the the amount of time that he lost but but equally he was never in the fight like he was on the granon it wasn't that he was he was up there and got dropped by the better contender. He just, just pretty much from the, from the start of the climb proper with what 14k to go or something like that. Um, Jersey was open, flapping. Teammates was there, and it was, you know, it was on the radio. Basically, uh, game over for me look after your podium Adam and, and, and Adam Yates had that whole climb to, to ride for himself and, and protect his third place
1: and pagacho also said that at one point he thought maybe his podium place was slipping away so that indicates how badly he was feeling on the climb and we've never seen Tele Pogacar look like this, have we? This is two really bad days back to back. And obviously the speculation will be, is it because of the far from ideal preparation, the the wrist break at liege Baston liege and the time off the bike and then very little racing and not ideal. I mean, he put a brave face on it. You know, he smiled his way through his recovery, came into the Tour. You know, he had that setback at the very start when Vingegaard took the time on the first of the mountain stages but then he struck back and it did look like he was chipping away chipping away chipping away but still in the back of my mind is this confident from Vingegaard that this would be a tour of minutes and not seconds and now it's looking like uh, the sort of time gaps that we used to see sort of 20 25 years ago
2: that's right well ignoring the the seven years of uh the, the officially been scrubbed from the records um for a time gap of 7 minutes between first and second on the GC you have to go back to 2014 and Vincenzo Nibali and was that Jean-Christophe Perrault or Thibaut Pino? was
1: Christophe Perro was on Jean-Christophe Perro was, was on the podium yeah. um, so and
2: and yeah. uh, and then back to 1997 and Jan Ulrich when he when he beat Richard Virenque and um, yeah uh, it could be even more if if Pogacar doesn't come around um Vingegaard and uh Jumbo Visma don't strike me as a sort of team that are going to go easy on that final mountain stage on Saturday. You know they'll they'll, they'll do what what Yumbo do and, and they'll ride it as they ride it. And uh, you know there's Vingegaard hasn't got that uh, that mountain stage win yet. Is that right? Um, he's got the TT win, but but there's something there's a quite a lot of prestige in in doing that, isn't there? In uh, throwing your hands in the air after a, a real kind of uh, symbolic stage win and i think i think for vinger go i think the uh the the final mountain stage on saturday is gonna you know he'll he'll still want to win even though this tour is basically already won
1: indeed yeah i mean i was at the uae team emirates bus at the finish and matching fernandez who even in the most difficult circumstances is kind of all smiles and happy to answer questions uh he had no real answers and uh well this is what he said at the finish I know it's very early but have you any indication what's wrong with today? Did you have the impression this morning that he wasn't quite right?
3: But the impression of yesterday is obviously after all, 1 minute 38 is a lot of the time. Uh, internal is the super complicated after 1 minute 38 not only for the time and for the gap and only for the really good uh, dash for this day. Obviously today is a Keep fighting for the maybe is the bad day of, of, of Jonas and actually is the good day of Jonas and bad day of today. It's the don't good feeling in the in the second climb and after is the plan is the maybe attack and after is the maintain the pace, maintain the pace, and don't pull, don't pull for maintaining the, the position and in the moment of the of this one level more of the of the of the pace, obviously today is cross.
1: So, Fernandez basically also said that they want to make sure they get that second and third place on the podium. That's the best they can do now, really, with Pogacar and Yates. Um, what about Jumbo-Visma, then? Because when we were at the service station earlier on, Richard, we saw the front page of L'Equipe, and the headline was Un planète," which to me just brought back echoes of Sur un planète," which was the headline that L'Equipe ran the day after, Lance Armstrong blitzed everybody on the climb to Sestriere in the 1999 Tour de France. And I think in some of the, the writing, there's also been uh, some scepticism. One of the other French papers, uh, Aujourd'hui, I think it was, the headline was basically, how did he do it? And there is this scepticism, this, uh, cynicism that swirls around the yellow jersey, um, and now that the gap is 7.35, it will be very interesting to see what the French papers in particular make of it tomorrow. It, it,
2: that's right. And, and it's amazing coming from the United Kingdom where we don't quite have the same... Uh, a, a newspaper or a publication doesn't quite have the same influence over the sort of zeitgeist and the, the, the talking points and, and the, the discussion in the way that L'Equipe does with the Tour de France. And the very fact that they put that headline there sort of sets the tone really for a lot of the debate um, and it, yeah it, we haven't seen tomorrow morning's papers yet but um, it will be really fascinating to see how they digest what Vingegaard did again today because as much as he'd he'd put himself in a winning position after the time trial I mean he his performance today was equally impressive I mean he wasn't actually that far away from Felix Gal and Simon Yates by the end there um, which uh, yeah is speaks for itself really he, he was he, he was the same rider that we saw yesterday again today
1: indeed at the bus I spoke to Jumbo vismas uh, team manager Arthur van Dongen and I asked him what he'd made of L'Equipe's front page headline this morning
5: yeah that's the Tour de France eh? we know uh, we know uh, Jonas uh, very well and uh, uh, we know what we do yeah uh, and that's the Tour de France and uh, that's uh, that's up to them it is what it is, and, uh, but it's up, up to them.
1: Is it slightly disappointing when you put together such a consistent race, a dominant performance, a dominant time trial, and then that's the kind of coverage that you see?
5: Oh, what I mentioned already, it's the Tour de France. Yeah? And we are prepared for that. It's every year the same. Yeah? Uh, but it is what it is. And uh, we, um, we, see, um, we stay how our, we our, um, our work, yeah? and we know Jonas, uh, no doubt.
1: Well, I think what Arthur Van Dongen said there, it's the Tour de France. This scepticism does swirl around the yellow jersey, particularly when the winning margin is significant or the performance is dominant. And I suppose we have all kind of seen these performances before and they have not stood up to uh, scrutiny. Uh, You know, Lance Armstrong, of course, but then there have been question marks about Bradley Wiggins with the uh, Triumph Synalone and the TUEs, Chris Froome and the TUEs. The yellow jersey is always, uh, it always comes with uh, question marks and uh, you know the, the the sort of the suspicion ramps up. And I suppose what I would say, having seen today's performances, is, is that as you say, Richard, Vingegaard rode as strongly today as he did yesterday. Pagacha has clearly unravelled pretty spectacularly. In the you know the last well 36 hours and is no longer in contention. But until that point, they were both incredibly well matched and well clear of the others in the GC battle. And I suppose my question would be: Well, if Vingegaard is now um, under intense suspicion or scepticism, then his performances in the first two weeks were consistent with his performances in the last two days. I think you know more or less. I mean, these two riders are the outliers in the Tour de France which it, which itself is the outlier in professional cycling and then when the outliers produce performances that are extraordinary suddenly we want them to appear completely human and completely fallible and we've seen Pogacar fallible and we haven't seen any cracks in, uh, in Vingegaard's armour but then when you think back a couple of weeks when Pogacar had him slightly on the ropes there were chinks there.
2: It's, it's really interesting to note like you said Lionel that there's always that there's always that sort of, uh, it's lurking in the background, that question, isn't it? At any point, it's just below the surface. But throughout this tour, that question of whether we can believe what we're seeing hasn't really come to the fore until Vingagor put nearly two minutes into pugacha in the time trial. And I wonder, we'll never know, but had it been much more closely Matched on the time trial, and again today, would we be having this discussion? Would Le Keep have put that front page? It would have taken nothing away from Vingegaard's performances, um, but there is something about that sort of uh, the standout nature of it, the, the difference in the it, that, that's been shown between Vingegaard and, and Pagaccha now, um, which has brought those questions on Vingegaard and.
1: Yeah, I think it comes up when the race is suddenly over and everyone feels yeah. that slight deflation. I mean, I just I'm not sort of doing a corrections corner on you here, but you said put nearly two minutes into Pagatra in the time trial. It was one thirty eight, which is actually quite a long way off two minutes. And I think we get we kind of, um, you know, we, we we sort of shorthand term quite a lot of our um, you know, discussions around the, how the racing unfolds and, and, and exaggerate almost in our own minds what happened. Yes, it was an absolute hammering. And the gap to Wout van Art 2 minutes 51, uh, it was a dominant, dominant performance. I suppose what I would say is that, that we're on a s- sticky ground watching an endurance sport like the Tour de France if, if it's going to be kind of ruled by a sort of performance-based suspicion. Somebody has to win somebody you know there's nothing to say that somebody can't be uh, significantly better than the second best athlete but I think the problem cycling has and continues to have is that there is this legacy you know it really isn't that long ago that uh, riders were being kicked out of the Tour de France left right and center you know you mentioned Lance Armstrong and the the seven asterisks you know that's not all that long ago Uh, you know he he raced up here in 2000 and 2005 you know at, at Courchevel. so there's there's this all this history that's sort of bound up with the tour de france and there's never going to be a clean break there's never been a clean break i suppose the other point i'd make is that we really we're in a strange era of all still waters on the doping front you know if you think back even to the sky years there were you know there were um, links to doctors or you know um, well as we we found with the with the tues you know it's really been there's n- there's kind of no noise in the forest is there and i suppose it's a little bit like that um analogy which i'm going to mangle but if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it has the tree fallen over and i think there's a little kind of element of that to the way we look at doping and cycling now i'm not going to say that the sport is clean because i don't think there's any way that any of us can say that but i also think that there is so little noise around doping in professional cycling at the moment. There's so few kind of connections other than the kind of the historical connections. You could look at the team staff on some of the team staff on UAE, UAE team Emirates and look back at their careers and their uh, connections to riders who've uh, tested positive. I mean, let's face it, Machine Fernandez was the uh, boss of the Saunier Duval team of Leonardo Piepoli and Ricardo Rico in the 2008 Tour de France. And, there are staff members in, lots of teams who will have a history. But I think there's a certain kind of opaqueness about what is going on at the moment. We, we kind of just don't know. And
2: and all we have to go on is the evidence of performance, like you said, which in a race like... Well, in any race, it, it's a sport which is looking for the real outliers in the population who are capable of putting in these performances which seem like, in the L'Equipe's words, from another planet... And cycling hasn't yet got to that point. I don't think where the Peloton is uniformly freaky um, for, you know, to carry on, you know, I feel like I'm uh, being a little bit rude here to the, to the Peloton, but
1: it's a sport of, it's a sport of outliers. And this is an event for those outliers. uh, I know uh, I, I, yeah, I I guess that's the, that's the big problem, isn't it? We kind of crave, uh, we crave closeness, I think more than we crave excellence. I think if, if the sort of public reaction is to um you know that's the sense i get i certainly feel that you know there was that deflation last night that the, the tour is over when we'd seen this fantastic battle it is so close so beautifully poised yeah and it, and it, it could have been decided by seconds but it hasn't been
2: and, and i think as well what's i mean it's <laughs> sort of evident in a sense to us here you know we've we've been sort of torpedoed slightly by first um robbie williams covers and now by biting insects i'm trying to land on the microphone here um the tour de france doesn't take place in a bubble it takes place in the real world um we were stuck behind the uae team bus coming down in the evacuation off course of today i mean there are real world conditions that we don't see and that we don't really consider when we think about these performances which aren't there to excuse performances we can't say that pogacar had a bad day because he had a bad bus ride or because he didn't sleep very well in the company Companil Hotel because the air conditioning didn't break. It didn't work. Sorry, but it's it's important to remember that that this takes place over a very long period of time, and as much as they are outliers, they are human, mm. and they are they're quite young men, really as well, and they're all vulnerable to certain things, and that's you know when you have to take that into account as
1: well. I think I'll uh, seek out Alex Roos over the next day or two. He's the writer the chief cycling writer for Lekeep, and he was not responsible for the headline on the front page of Le keep That would be staff in the office, of course. But it would be interesting to get his perspective on uh, what he's made of the last two days of racing. And, well, he was a subject of a kilometre zero. He spoke very well about his own work, and it would be interesting to hear his point of view. Now, somebody else who's in the thick of the action today was our very good friend, Seb Piquet. <laughs>
6: This is Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. Bonjour, bonjour, from Courchevel. What a day. I have said it before, I will say it again. Something has changed on the Tour de France. Never have I seen so many spectators on the side of the road. I don't know why, I don't know if there is a reason, but ever since we started in Basque Country, uh, going through the Pyrenees, Massif Central, now in the Alps, and today for the Queen's Stage, I have never seen so many people on the side of the road. And sadly, they're not all very disciplined. Uh, what happened today? Well, we were going up to Le Col de la Lose, behind the yellow jersey, Jonas Vingegaard, who was actually on his own. And suddenly we saw a red car, a commissaire car, in front of us, stopped, blocked, probably because of motorbikes being blocked in front of uh, them. And uh, it was absolutely chaotic. Riders were coming from behind. They couldn't go through. Wingard couldn't go through. Thankfully, thankfully, uh, it had no uh, consequence on the standings. But it's a bit worrying for the additions to come, and I'm afraid that things will need to be done. I don't know what. I'm not a specialist. I don't know if it's barriers, I don't know if it's uh, preventing people to go or too many many people to go to uh, some of the climbs. I mean, it's a free sport, it has to remain a free sport. It's great to have spectators, but something really has to be done because we will have a problem one day. The other issue is also the alcohol. I mean, uh, the fans that we saw on the side of the road were sometimes uh, not completely normal probably due to alcohol Uh, they are not necessarily cycling fans they don't necessarily know how a a race goes they don't necessarily know that behind a rider there are cars there are motorbikes there are other riders so yeah it was pretty chaotic Um, and I will certainly remember this queen stage for a very long time
1: Quickly, Richard, that incident with the car that got stopped and then Vingegaard, and I think by that stage it was Kelderman, wasn't it, trying to get past. Uh, The the road was completely blocked. The motorbikes were stalled, couldn't get going again. The crowd at all, um, you know, filled the road. Uh, As Seb says there, uh, it's getting to a point where the crowds are so significant on the climbs that it's beginning to impact the race. And maybe something will have to be done in future years to just ensure that the riders have enough space to race on the roads
2: yeah, I didn't quite make it up to the to the climb of the cold but we're seeing it time and time again aren't we they're just uh, it's we were talking about this the other night actually once we finished recording but there's a sense that um, cycling is sort of owned by the public it's not owned by I mean it the Tour de France is run and owned by ASO, but, but the public has a, a real significant stake in any cycling event. And so the notion of limiting access to go and watch that is is actually kind of a, a bit of a taboo, really. It's a very difficult thing to to even consider and, and, and to even think of charging p- people to go up and see a bike race is even worse. I mean, that's, and that's one of cycling's great strengths. So I think, I'm sure this is a topic we'll return to, um, but it's it's something that, that organisers and, and, and commissaires and UCI are going to have to tread very carefully around this. It's it's not going to be an easy issue to solve.
1: Well, talking of safety, Richard, you went up to the part of the descent over the top of the Col de la Lose where they had constructed some airbeds on a tight corner to, well, protect the riders and, and, and stop them from, presumably, from going over the edge if they got the corner wrong.
2: That's right. there. I met a chap called Dominique who had installed uh, the air pads, as they are, uh, they have a name. They are basically giant airbeds, um, sort of two meters tall by about 10 long and the five of them in a line um on a really nasty corner actually um very steep drop off into it not much sight line coming into it narrow road sharp turn it the organizers and dominique this chap who works for a company that that manages safety and skiing competitions normally he aso and, and he had, had basically discussed and analyzed the climb and, and identified this as the most dangerous corner on that descent so this is the first time they've been put in in a bike race and the idea is that if a rider doesn't make that turn instead of carrying on at that speed into what was sort of a gravelly lay-by area and off into alpine meadow they go into these air pads, um, which are designed to deflate when you, on, on on impact. They have valves which are quite sensitive to shock, and they're quite softly inflated. Um, so the idea is a rider goes into them, becomes sort of enveloped by the uh, by the, the the air bed, and then it falls over and and keeps them safe. It doesn't look like you know it's not a sort of entirely comfortable procedure but it's 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 there to stop serious injury or, yeah. or worse and
1: better than the alternative
2: absolutely um and well i whether we'll see this in uh, in in more cycling events i, I don't know that they, they do look very easy to install they're just a sort of modified leaf blower and uh, to, to inflate them um and and dominique just had a pickup truck so yeah very quite quite low cost easy um and, and presumably effective but measure but let's hope they're never Tested in competition,
1: and they've come over from uh, alpine skiing.
2: That's alpine right, yeah, skiing and, and uh, MotoGP motorcycle racing on circuits is where they've been used before. So, um, yeah, so so they it's sort of proof of they, they've been proved in other sports, so um, it's not complete, uh, unproven technology there.
1: It's never too late for the 1101 Cappuccino. Get regular updates from The Cycling Podcast in your email inbox or the Substack app during the Tour de France. Go to the CyclingPodcast.substack.com to sign up.
0: L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner.
1: Well, yesterday's dinner was an absolute delight, wasn't it? It was very untour de France-like. We came down to Salonche and Lizzie Banks had found a takeaway sushi place, and we ordered our sushi. And we sat in a little square at some well, some tables that belonged to a cafe that are closed. But we pulled our pulled a seat up and ate our sushi. I ordered the the sort of set menu which were called the calories. I was going
2: to say, are you going to
1: admit to the listeners? It it was a huge quantity of sushi and I didn't manage to get through it all, uh, but it was absolutely delicious. And in in fact, after sort of two weeks on the tour with uh, eating lots of sort of meat in brown sauce, which, you know, is nice, but it does become a bit wearing to have, uh, to have, uh, well, ramen two nights ago and then sushi last night, I feel like a new man.
2: I'm just, I'm itching for that. Uh, Cassoulet or... uh, (laughs)
1: No, that's the mosquitoes, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some sad news for the balloon Lion Lion Bernie, Bought for me to celebrate my birthday on the opening day of the tour way back in Bilbao. I'd had hope to get balloon Lion Bernie home. It's a big lion face, a bit like one of the credit Lyonnais lions that uh, UAE team Emirates have in the window of their bus for Adam Yates' yellow jerseys early in the tour. Uh, Big smiley lion. And unfortunately, he didn't make it today. I opened the door of the cycling podcast Broom Wagon. I think the high altitude, it was so firm. You know, you would expect over a couple of weeks for a, a sort of birthday party balloon to deflate a bit, but it hadn't deflated at all, and it felt so firm. And as soon as I opened the door, it just burst.
2: I mean, anything can happen, can't it? You, you... It's you just a, never know. In the third week of a tour, it can you can be so close to making it to Paris, exactly. and then it just all goes disappears like that. As exactly. happened to
1: Lyon. What is on the menu for tomorrow? Because it's well, looks on paper like it might be a sprint stage, but that all depends on who's going to go in the break and who is prepared to chase the break. It's a little bit lumpy. Leaves from Moutier, goes to Bourg-en-Bresse, the home of the very fine. Uh, Poulet de brest, the chicken maybe we'll have some chicken in brown sauce tomorrow night Richard Um, Matt Heyman of Jaco Alula said he's fed up with second places and they really hope that it will be a sprint tomorrow Dylan Groenewegen is their man of course he had one of those second places in Moulin I think it was earlier in the tour still looking for that first win for Jaco Alula so they will certainly chase but uh, having lost Phil Bauhaus today uh, the sprint field is thinning out a little bit and it remains to be seen how well Jasper Philipsen has got through the mountains and whether Alpesin de Koenig have the fight for that chase. Who are we looking at other than Philipsen? Mads Pedersen, uh, Brian Cocker, Jordi Meos, Binium Gamay, Groenewegen. The sprint field has thinned out a fair bit. And, well, depending on how things go, it could be a sprint tomorrow. It could perhaps even be a sprint on Friday and then almost certainly a sprint on the Champs-Élysées. So uh, Philipsen might well be looking at what five, six, seven stage wins? Which, for a tour that was light on sprint stages, mm. uh, was
2: it, as was the talk coming into it. He's, uh, yeah, and I think the thing with Phillipson as well is. He hasn't won those stages and and got where he's got in the green jersey competition because other sprinters have disappeared. He's he's looked great in the mountains and he's looked like the fastest sprinter here. So it will be quite interesting to to see how he comes out of these these last few days. I mean, I was up at the finish line in the Altiport, and once the sort of GC contenders and breakaway riders come through, you then see the bigger riders, the lead-out men, the kind of barouders, and then the sprinters come through, and they all just look universally. Very tired. It's it's not been an easy few days, has it for them? And even even just the time trial, making the time cut yesterday. So that's to take into account as well how quite how they've uh, come through these last few days. But I think Phillips and on on previous form has has been pretty comfortable as far as you can be for a sprinter. So, yeah.
1: Well, we shall see tomorrow. We'll be in bourg Brest this time tomorrow. Hopefully not surrounded by a peloton of mosquitoes Uh, we need to go and have something to eat it might be cheesy here in the alps mightn't it but cheesy uh, sushi cheesy sushi (laughs) no i don't think that's such a thing uh but until tomorrow richard thank you very much thank you lionel
6: the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by richard moore daniel free and lionel burney